forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I sunburn easily. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm a momager. Oh no. I'm a momager, Allison. But you don't have a child. I'm everyone's momager. I'm the Chris Jenner of my own life. Okay. Because, girl. What? Uh, you'll find out, you'll see in this episode why. I, I can't help myself, but I can manage other people. You mean like their careers? Yes. Okay. If I had kids like how Kris Jenner did, I mm-hmm. they would all be models. They would all be influencers. I feel like I could do someone else's career like that. Why haven't you helped my career more? You didn't ask. You don't want my <laughs> advice. I'm asking your advice all the time. The things that I would tell you to do, you don't want to do them. Like what? More thirst traps? No, my audience does not like that. When I post <laughs> photos of like that like would be for a typical influencer, they do badly. <laughs> Okay. I mean, look, I would have recommended Emotional Support Lady, but you're already doing it. So I think you should have an Emotional Support Lady podcast. I think you should have an Emotional Support Lady TikTok account. Yeah. See, Melissa says feet thirst traps. You're not using all of the things you have at your disposal. So what am I not doing? I'm not doing a a Emotional Support Lady podcast and I'm not what? Emotional Support Lady TikTok feet post. (laughs) Only fans for your feet. And I think you should try to put out like an emotional support lady book. Like you should sell that book too. Okay. Well, you don't really know what I am and I'm not working on. Oh, (laughs) you see, I'm right. I think I need to get a a much bigger following on emotional support lady before I can really. Really? I think you, I think you're doing great. It's stagnated. We've hit, we've hit a wall. You love to say that you've plateaued and it's not true. No, I haven't plateaued. I'm on the decline in all my other accounts. (laughs) That's just the reality of the situation. No, you gotta, you, this is, you gotta sell yourself. You can't be talking about declines. You can't be talking about like plateaus. You got to act. You got to fake it till you make it, baby. You got to act. I'm faking, hey, I'm faking it. I'm still posting. I'm still creating. I just... I'm like a 1920s like manager who like found you at the cabaret. I guess. I, this is what I told Mal. I was like, one, book proposal. Two, thirst traps. Three. And Mal was like, okay, I have some questions. This is what you want your partner to do is post more thirst traps? Yes. Yeah, that adds up. Thank you. Anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety (laughs) show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. And the tone of this opening, I don't think matches what the show episode is about, because I'm so delighted and honored and happy that we finally have my aunt, Michelle Dunbaker, on the show, because you're trying to have her on for a bit. She is an amazing writer. She and my uncle are like an inspiration to me in, in terms of a love story. And he was diagnosed with HIV in uh, 1986, 1987, about 10 months into them being married. And they stuck by each other. They, spoiler alert, he's still alive. He was given like a year and a half to live. I mean, it's just like such a wonderful, touching, incredible story. Um, And she's written it into this book called The Shooter's Wife, which she sent me a year ago. And I read it sobbing. Um, And I've been trying to work on getting it published. So this is me saying, hello, if you're a person who publishes books, get at me. The book made me 
I mean, just cry my eyes out for hours. So I'm just so glad to have her here and I love her so much. And we got to interview her about her, her and my uncle's story. And I, I think it really deserves to be heard. So I'm excited. So stick around after the break and we get to meet Gabby's aunt. back to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have a very special episode because we have my aunt michelle dunn baker on um and she's a writer and uh she's written an incredible book that hasn't come out yet but i've read it and it's all about chronicling um the 80s and 90s with her partner my uncle steven and his journey with HIV starting around like the mid 80s onward. And so we've been talking a lot about it because I read Michelle's book. I feel like it's such a uh, beautiful story. Um, so I want to start at the very beginning because I feel like our audience is young and doesn't really understand what it was like around the time that AIDS was becoming a thing. So like, where, what were you and Steven doing? What were your lives like right before he got diagnosed? Well, right before he got diagnosed, we both had, were newly sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. We were very excited about our new life together. And quite frankly, we were trying to have a baby because I was 34, 35, 36, and he was 39. And we were actively trying to get pregnant. So it's actually, you know, quite surprising that I didn't have HIV as well, because, you know, we were doing things like I was standing on my head after sex, and we were counting the days in the calendar and doing everything we could to make a baby. We were very interested in traveling, and we had planned a trip to go to Paris, and we were just like madly in love. And uh, we were new in our program. You know, that was our life, going to AA, trying to be open and honest with each other and, you know, have a beautiful relationship. And that's where it was at. You were married for about a year, right? Yeah, 10 months when we got the news. How did you find out? Well, Stephen had, had applied for life insurance. And so he was at work one day and the doctor called. In fact, he was sitting in a sales meeting. Um, with his guys. And he had it on speaker, the phone on speaker. And the doctor said, Stephen, are you gay? And Stephen said, no. And the doctor said, well, you have AIDS. And so Stephen said, I think I better take this to my office. And he went in his office and the doctor said, you know, I didn't know you were gay. And Stephen said, I'm not. You know, I think I've shared with you that I was an IV drug user. And, you know, that was a long time ago in my life. And um, he said, well, that's must that must be how you got it. But, you know, you have HIV. So at that time, he what, didn't have full blown AIDS. But two years later, he did develop Kaposi's coma, which is one of the ways that you um, transition into having full blown AIDS. And um, that's how he found out was through a blood test. So, okay, so that sort of, to me, indicates the attitudes at the time. So this was yeah. like 1985? 86. Well, 87, actually. We got married in 86, and this was the following um, spring, I think it was. Or So that might sound wild to someone now listening, that a doctor would just speak like that. Um, was that sort of the prevailing storyline? No, we just, we didn't know a lot. I mean, we knew that there was a chance that anybody that had used drugs in that time could have it. And 
we certainly knew, Stephen knew that it was a possibility, but you don't think anything is going to happen to you ever. You know, it was not widely talked about or known. Um, it was right before everything started just popping up everywhere. After that, at that point is when things started to really get out of control and you started hearing about AIDS everywhere. So how did he come home and tell you? What happened was my friend, Regina, called me. Her husband worked with Stephen and apparently her husband called her. He was a very close friend of Stephen's. So she called me up and she said, have you talked to Stephen? She said, are you all right? Out of the blue. And I said, sure. She said, well, have you talked to Stephen? And I said, not yet. And so she put me on notice and said, well, something happened. I'm sure it'll be okay. And I'm completely, you know, in the dark. I'm sitting waiting for Stephen to come home from work. And he, I called Billy, her husband at work. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, the doctor called and he had some news for Stephen. I'm sure he'll, he wants to tell you. And so right away, I'm, you know, very, very concerned. And Stephen walked in the door. So I hung up and he just said to me, I don't know how to tell you this, except to tell you that I have HIV. And, um, you know, the doctor just said that it may or may not, you know, turn into, they, they didn't know anything. They seriously didn't know anything. So that was how I found out. And my world kind of, you know, stopped right there. Everything that we wanted to do and I planned to do stopped. And um, we went from there, you know, we went to see doctors and the first doctor we went to knew nothing. You know, he said, I think that there is about, there's a slight chance that you could develop AIDS from this HIV, you know, very, 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 very slight. So don't worry. And of course he was completely wrong. Then we went down to the University of Miami where Margaret Fischel was doing studies and we got on a protocol where it was AZT for asymptomatic patients. And they were given massive amounts of AZT to these patients. And Stephen immediately, you know, needed a blood transfusion. And then when he got the second blood transfusion, they kicked him off the study. There was just nothing around. That was like the only drug available. So we immediately started looking for other ways to heal and alternatives and alternative healing. And we started searching. At the time, they thought that you could transmit HIV from sharing the same air, shaking hands, spitting. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. they really had no idea. And I remember in your book, you talk about the kid in South Florida who he's there's like a lawsuit because he has HIV and people are like, he can't go to the high school. Like he can't right. swim in the swimming pool with the other kids right. at the high school. Um, and so like, like, what was the attitude at the time? Was it just basically like, Stephen's a leper? This is like, you know, we didn't tell a lot of people at that time. We didn't even tell our family for a while, for a very long time. And um, slowly but surely, we started, you know, bringing people in. But I didn't feel like he was being ostracized. I just, we were very careful who we told. But we also didn't, you know, force ourselves into situations or hang out with a lot of people. Um, I think we were pretty aware of the prejudices. I was certainly aware of the comments people made. People would tell jokes about AIDS and um, it was just disgusting. You know, when you saw what people were thinking, you know, what their thinking was and what their lack of sensibility was, it was just, it was awful. 
I remember being once in a store in a dressing room and hearing these women talking about, oh, if, if there was some program on TV and say, if my husband ever came home and told me, you know, that he had AIDS, I would just, you know, I would kick him out so fast. And I just walked out of that dressing room and I looked at them and I said, you don't know what you would do. Don't be so quick to judge. You don't know what you would do if someone you loved was sick. Maybe that's exactly what they would do. You know, poor them. You know, yeah. I wanted to call up their husbands and say, your wife doesn't really love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I sort of wanted to ask a bit of, about your, you know, your internal reaction to hearing that news. I mean, I would assume you were afraid for your own health. You know, I never I never was. Oh, really? really? I never was. It was the day that he told me I knew that I was there just to be his companion, his wife, his healer his lover, everything that I had been to him and more. I never thought I would get sick and I never did. Wow. You know, obviously we never had unprotected sex after that, but, you know, I wasn't afraid to touch him, to hold him, to kiss him. Uh. Didn't occur to me to do anything else. And it was just a feeling that I had that was more than just a feeling. It was a surety that I had that we were meant to go through this together. You said that um, in the book that, Pete, because you had only been married for 10 months, there were some people who said, you can get out. You should just get mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. What was that reaction like? And what, and what was your response to that? My response was, and it happened to have been, I know that what you're talking about, and that came from someone that I was very close to in the, in the recovery program. And my response to that person was, you don't know me very well for all the time we've spent together. And doing the steps together and opening up to each other. It was shocking to me that that would be what that person would say to me because that just never was in the cards. That never entered my mind to leave him. You know, sure, anybody could leave for any reason at any time, but to me, that was never going to happen. And for somebody to say that to me, first of all, I think is a little bit outside the boundaries and also, they know me pretty well, and they know that I'm very loyal, and they know how much I love Stephen and always have, that I would ever think of just turning my back on him. It was surprising to me to hear that. I think a lot of people's true faces show when someone mm -hmm. gets sick, especially yeah. in a way that isn't palatable, like cancer, you know, in a, yeah. in a way that people go, oh, well, they did this to themselves, like, which is such a horrific way of putting that. Was he afraid that you would leave ever? I don't think so. Oh. I, I don't think he was. I can't imagine that he was. But he very often says that he couldn't have done it without me, which I just say, well, you would have gotten some chicken here to do all this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he always had somebody. <laughs> well, the, what was the life expectancy like when you first started seeing doctors and, and how did that scare you? 18 months. Yeah. And you had just gotten married. I mean, right. that wasn't good. And how long have you been married now? It'll be 35 years this summer. Wow. Yay. <laughs> so he, so right away, I mean, how did you guys handle being newlyweds and hearing like he might be gone in two years? Not very well. I mean, he, first of all, never believed AIDS was going to take his life. He really did not. He really believed that he could live with AIDS and coexist with AIDS. And that happened after a while. I mean, after a while of working with visualization and many healers, 
Um, we did go on a journey of healing and go to the Navajo reservation and uh, work with um, a visualization person from the University of Miami. I mean, we did a lot of things alternatively. He just felt that he could kind of make friends with the disease and that he could find a way to live with AIDS and that he didn't have to kill it and it didn't have to kill him. Very interesting, but he did it. And he also used whatever Western medicine was available that worked. You know, he went through a lot of protocols where the other person and other people in the protocol died and Stephen was the last man standing and he didn't die. It didn't cure him, but it, but he didn't die. That was kind of interesting. I wanted to be as positive as he was. And I, I worked on that because I knew that was part of what was going to keep him going was that we both were going to be as positive as he was. And many times I was, but there was always that very frightening thought that I could lose him. And I knew how powerful this was. If you remember, I had a very good friend, Larry, who did pass away from the disease. And, you know, it was all around us, people that we met in the protocols that we became friends with, very good friends with. And they were all dying. And there were so many people dying that we didn't know, but there were people we did know. And we would meet people and make friends with them, and then they'd be gone. And I couldn't help but think, this could be us. You know, this could be Stephen. Um, it was very difficult. And I just would be crushed if I lost him. And that sounds strange because some people would say, of course, you're going to lose him. But I did also feel the way he felt like, no, I'm not. We're going to do this. And that's what kept us going. There was part of me that felt just like he did, that I wasn't. I mean, you know us. Mm -hmm. I was about to say, I love you guys so much. I know. And you know us. We didn't act like people that were going to lose, lose it all. Yeah. We always had plans, you know, big plans. And we kept that on. Always trips, always stuff in the future to look yeah. forward to. Yeah. That first trip we took after his diagnosis, we didn't know if he was going to live or die. And we went to Paris because we had been planning to go to Paris. And he said, let's go. But we walked around like, are we ever going to get to do anything like this again? I mean, like, you know, it was it was pretty weird, <laughs> but we loved it. We had a great time. We loved it. Did the doctors ever give any sort of explanation as to why he was outliving all these other patients? One thing they said was that he was very sensitive to the medication and that he reacted well to it, whatever that was supposed to mean. And it was, I thought that that was really BS because if everybody else was not living as a result of the medication, I don't care how well he, you know, reacted to the medication, it wouldn't be working. Right. It's not clearly not working. Yeah. Personally, I thought that what they gave him, the dose they gave him of the AZT initially was too high because it was knocking everybody's, you know, brains out and that. I thought if they just gave him less, wouldn't it work better? And it's funny because later when they reintroduced AZT, they introduced it at much lower doses. Huh. So I said, well, if everyone would just listen to me, we could probably really <laughs> cure this immediately. <laughs> well, I know. So your life became kind of going to all these trials, going with him up to Boston, going with him to University of Miami. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, you talk about in the book, the people passing away. I mean, getting to know everyone else and 35 other people in the trial and then coming back and finding out they've all passed away other than Stephen. And you're, you know, you talk about your life being upended by traveling with him and going with him to, to, you know, not wanting to leave him by himself doing these treatments. Um, And so when did like, when did you guys decide to start looking at like alternative medicine? We were really looking at alternative medicine all the time. We were all, always doing both. You know, we were always um, doing Chinese medicine and visualization with Janet Kanepel and Native American ceremony. That was always going hand in hand. Like we would go to the reservation, do um, ceremony with the medicine man and then come back and have his T cells taken to Uh see if anything had changed. And it always had, you know, for the positive. So it, it really went hand in hand. That's unusual. Cause I think sometimes people say, well, you like, don't trust any Western doctors just do, you know, alternative medicine, or then, you know, Western doctors will be like, don't bother with that stuff. Yeah. Did you encounter that? Yeah. People like Western doctors would say, well, I guess it won't hurt, you know, or, you know, be careful. Don't take anything, you know, like that's what Stephen's father was famous for saying. You can go there, but don't take anything, you know, don't, don't ingest anything. My dad was just whatever it takes, you know, and he, he was a medical man, you know, you know, for how long and, and, and how seriously he took it. My parents were wonderful about it and his were too, but a little more straight laced than my parents, but they were wonderful. But a lot of people, you know, didn't react so well to uh, what we were doing. And we didn't tell. That's why we didn't talk about it to a lot of people. We weren't going to take the advice. I just was wondering, like, at what point did you become more open and, and public about it? I guess as we became more comfortable with ourselves, with being more ready to trust our own instincts and not worry about what other people thought, I guess, you know, it's hard when other people are trying to sway you. And that was the last thing we wanted was other people's advice. I think when we realized we were strong enough. Was that like a a year later, like 10 years later? Was it when sort of like society's view on it kind of changed or? No, we didn't care about that. I think it was probably six months to a year. Mm. That was a period of time that we started opening up more to our families. And then, you know, our friends eventually after that, it was like, who cares? You You don't like it. Deal with it. Once he had passed like the two year mark and then the three year mark, did you start to be like, okay, maybe we have a handle on this. Maybe he's it's we don't have to act like he's going to die any day. Good question. I don't remember any turning point. Certainly not early on. I would think that it would have been very recently where I would have been saying, well, recently things have happened since then that kind of. Yeah, he has cancer right now. Right. Which has scared way more than AIDS ever did. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've been like so great and so devoted. And I look to you guys' relationship as like an example of like a romantic relationship, like how how that should be. And like, I think like, you know, you talk in the book about not having AIDS yourself, but always being like, we have AIDS. Or like, yeah. you know, forgetting. So can you talk about like forgetting sometimes that you weren't also like HIV positive? Everything was always we, you know, mm-hmm. and 
And not only did I forget it, but sometimes like his doctors or their staff would forget it. You know, it would always be like Stephen and Michelle are here for their, their appointment, you know, like that. <laughs> People often told me that they always assumed that I had it too until we showed up and realized Stephen was the patient. Because it was always like both of us or either of us making the phone call or making the the appointment and people just didn't know what to think because it was always, you know, just the two of us. It was never one or the other. So I just always felt we were a team and we always have been. When we went to uh, for the creative visualization, we were both going. There was just no question about it. It wasn't he was going with these five other men to do creative visualization. It was Michelle and Stephen and five other men, you know, that were going for creative visualization. What's creative visualization? Well, this woman, Janet Knaffel, led a group in visualizing the disease. And, you know, the group sit down and, and would tell everybody now, how do you picture your disease? What do you think the AIDS virus looks like? And somebody might say squiggles and somebody else might say a lollipop. And somebody, I mean, they would each have their own visual idea of what the AIDS virus itself looked like. And Pac-Man was, was one of them. And, you know, like everybody, and then she would have them do things. You know, each person's virus would do things. She would have them, you know, like say, walk across the street or eat up the other viruses or, you know, and, and each one would. And she would lead them through these exercises with their viruses. It was pretty fascinating. And I couldn't do the AIDS virus because I didn't have it, but I could work on something else. And I always did. I always took part in all of the exercises and I found it really fascinating. <clears throat> and I thought it was just a great way to deal with your issues, you know, whatever they were. Emotional issues, it worked perfectly. They didn't mind having me at all these things. So I tagged along. <laughs> I always felt a part of it. And Stephen insisted I do everything with him. And he would just tell the doctors, you know, my wife has to be here too. You know, whatever we're doing, my wife has to be a part of it. She has to be able to come in the room with me. That's why this whole COVID thing has really, you know, made it hard with his appointments for, for cancer because I can't come in with him in the... Um, oncologist. I can't come in with to see the, the surgeon. All of these appointments that he has, I can't be a part of it. I have to do it on FaceTime and it's not the same. But in those days, it was, it was a lot looser too. You know, nobody cared if I was tagging along and got to be one of the gang. Yeah, it is very, you know, seeing you go through HIV with him and then seeing you like being in the room and then seeing you dealing with his cancer and having to sit in the car and stuff is so strange because it's so yeah. not your way. Right. I don't know if you want to talk about going to the reservation and what you guys did there. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things that we did in terms of his healing process was um, to get to go and um, participate in Native American healing. And Stephen was the patient with a medicine man for the most sacred of the 38 traditional Native American ceremonies and uh, Navajo ceremonies. We came upon it because Stephen sponsored someone whose father was an advocate for uh, an attorney and an advocate for Native Americans. 
Okay, he had a brother, this um, guy that Stephen sponsored had a brother who married a Navajo woman. Long story short, because it's too hard to follow the family tree, (laughs) we had access to um, a family out on um, the Navajo reservation. And when we went to see them, they said that they could hook us up with a, a medicine man. But first, they wanted to see, you know, who we actually should be seeing for the kind of healing Stephen was seeking, which was some way to heal from AIDS or to find a path to find his own healing. So we went to see this first gentleman, Kichi Harvey, and he sent us off to see this other person who led us to this old woman called the shooter's wife, which is the name of the book. Her name was Julia. She took us through these amazing ceremonies and she drew in the dirt and she was older than dirt. She, she said she was 75. And I'm telling you, if she was 95, she was a day. She was adorable and beautiful. She told us that at the end, she told us that we would need a ceremony called the big wind, which is the one that's the most sacred of all the 38 traditional Navajo ceremonies that it had to be performed by a particular man she told us his name. Oh, it was amazing. Just spending the day with her was amazing. So we went off with this family that took her there, took us there. And they said they would get the entire Hogan, which is the thing that we had the ceremony in. And they would get it all ready for us and do everything we had to do. And we would come back the next year and we would have the ceremony and they would take care of everything. They would gather all of the things we needed for the ceremony. And this is in Arizona, right? Yeah. And uh, in a town called Tisto. So we left Julia. It turned out, you know, Julia was this family's grandmother. And we came back and they had gotten everything prepared for us as they promised. And we came to know these people very well. And we went back for many years, came back every year and had ceremony done. Most of the time with this medicine man. He was amazing. And it was like days of this, right? Like Stephen was like in the tent for like days, sweating. The ceremony like- was nine, nine days, nine, nine nights. It was amazing. And, you know, they drew in the dirt. They painted him. They had different color paints that they made right there. They had fire ceremonies. They did beautiful things. I was, you know, the, the one that made the meals and carried them in cleaned the goat, you know, and did all these things that the women did. It wasn't, you know, very... It was not a matriarchy. Yes, not at all. What year did you first go? Was it 1988, 1989? I don't know. This was like not a thing, though. This was like white people did not go to this. Oh, no, you were not allowed. The, The big win was never performed for a white person. This was like through special dispensation, you know, I mean... Because of this man that we knew that was the advocate for them, that's the only reason why it got done. They came around one night when people were preparing for this ceremony. One of the days before that, the chief of the medicine men came and started joking about Stephen and kind of poking fun at him. He kept hanging around through the um, preparation days. And finally, he was out by the fire one night and Stephen came out. He said to him, you know, I'm here not because I want to be. I'm here because I have to be. I'm here to save my life. You know, I'm not trying to co-opt anything that belongs to you. And I'm not and I'm not trying to steal any of the Navajo ways. 
or bring them up back to my people and, and make fun of you or, you know, expose you in any way. I'm here because Julia Vanna, a medicine woman, sent me here. Mm. And this is the healing I need in order to live. And that's the only reason I'm here. And I respect you. And I plan to always do what's right in the honor of the Navajo people. And that's all I could tell you is the truth. He gave him, you know, this wonderful speech. And after that night, this medicine man came to every ceremony of the nine days and nights. And he began to explain in English what some of the ceremonies meant and what the medicine man that was performing the ceremony, what he was doing. And he really got Stephen and he started to really be warm to him instead of making fun of him and, and saying all these things behind his back, you know, in Navajo. It was beautiful. And in, in your book, you change names and you don't describe the ceremony and right. you, you know, you're very, uh, yeah. I, th- I thought I, when I was reading it, I, th- I would never have considered doing that. And then I was like, oh, of course, like that makes a lot of you sense. Yeah, you have to. When that was going on, was there a change medically? Was there a change like when you would go back to Western medicine? What would what would happen? Yeah, his T cells would rise. His viral load would be non-detectable. I mean, he would always be strong. And you could tell that a change had taken place. It was amazing. This is obviously an incredibly sensitive subject. So you, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. But I was just curious, did you guys ever revisit the idea of potentially like adopting a child or? Yeah, we did talk about adopting, but it was interesting. His parents were visiting us one time and we were considering adopting. And what we came to realize with a little help from my mother-in-law and (laughs) father-in-law was that having a child would have taken me away from Stephen because my energies would have gone toward that child because it it would have had to happen. And that was not something that I could afford to do. I couldn't give Stephen all my attention and give a child all my attention. It just wouldn't have happened. And I wouldn't have been able to travel with him as we often did to go places like the reservation and to California to meet another healing doctor that we went to see and just drop at the drop of the hat. We would just go anywhere at any time because we'd hear about something. We had to check it out to see if that was a good fit for us. And I couldn't do that if I had children. I made the conscious decision to not have children and, you know, to have nine nieces and nephews that I adore. And uh, one of them is sitting in the room with you, I think. (laughs) No, I mean, I love my nieces and nephews and, you know, some of them have children. So I have grandnieces and grandnephews now too. And I don't, uh, I don't regret it. You know, sometimes I'm a little choked up you know, because I always wanted a child, you know, I always wanted a daughter, but I have a daughter. Gabby's my daughter, you know. Um, Yeah. I told Michelle something before I told my mom and my Mal was like, you have to tell your mom because if she finds (laughs) out you told Michelle first. But then when I told my mom and and I said, I had to tell you because Mal said that you're going to be mad that I told Michelle. uh, My mom was like, I know that you like Michelle better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. Yeah, I mean, I know that in the in the book, it's a very sad scene of you putting the adoption papers in a drawer and being like, saying goodbye to that. Yeah, it's it's hard. You know, it was hard. You have in life, you have to make these decisions sometimes. And you just have to do what's right. And that was what was right. He's my first priority. You know, some people think that that's 
not good. And I think that that's very good. So too bad. Before we move on, can we just talk a little bit about meeting him and falling in love with him and how you knew he was your person? Oh, my God. (laughs) Her favorite subject. Yeah. Well, I at first didn't know. And then I just had this strange thing that I was drawn to him. Then, you know, we hung out as friends. You met in AA. Yeah, we met in AA. And and we were friends and I was kind of in his business. You know, like he would talk about whether he should move back to Boston. And I would say, no, 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 you should stay in South Florida. Boston is where all your old bad habits were. And I was always giving him advice like that. And one day he asked me to go out on a date, like just go out for dinner, the two of us and not as friends. I was kind of stunned and I stood there and he went, no, 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 that's okay. You don't have to. And he walked away and I thought, where's he going? So (laughs) he went home and I called him and I said, weren't you just asking me on a date? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. I said, no, I was going to say yes. And so Uh... he was like, oh, good. So we went out on a date and that was it. We never looked back. We were like together all the time after that just constantly together. And, you know, I, I went through all my craziness with men and I kept expecting him to hurt me. And he kept telling me, why do you keep expecting me to hurt you? Cause I'm not going to do it. And eventually I started to believe him, you know, because I could see that, you know, he was working a program. So he'd say things like, um, I'm feeling very nervous on this date. And, you know, I really don't want to do anything that will cause you to think less of me. Like he would be like, like this kind of robot AA guy, <laughs> you know? And I think super communicative, like robot. <laughs> and I go like, does he think I'm buying this? This is like so creepy, but he really was being serious. He was trying to do the right thing and say the right thing. And eventually I got it, you know, that he was, you know, and I'd say, I thought this was Mr. You know, hips looking cool. And, you know, he sounds like he's, reading from some script, but then eventually he became himself. (laughs) We were crazy about each other. We just were, we're always together. And uh, it just, you know, it's still like that. We just love being together more than anything else. So I'm very lucky. When your car pulls up, what does he do? Oh yeah. He always says that. Well, when he comes home, he always says that if his car, if my car is in the driveway, when he comes home, it gets excited like a little kid. And things like that. He's like, she's home. She's home. Yeah, right. She's home. She's home. He's like a little kid. He really is. And it's just that you can't beat that feeling of have someone to have someone love you that much. He's amazing. So, and I do love him that much. It's cool. It's super cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's what you want, girls. (laughs) Yeah. And boys and thems and whoever is out there. That's what you want in a partner. (laughs) Thank you so much. The book is incredible. There's so much more that like we didn't get to and so much more about like attitudes about AIDS at the time and the way that, I mean, just the way that things were back then and and you guys' love story. There's like so many twists and turns. So yeah, I mean, thank you for coming on and talking about it. And I was sobbing at the end of it. I read it (laughs) hysterical, hysterical. (laughs) So thank you. And then- because she's Michelle and she's just, you know, um, cares about other people more than herself. It's just been sitting on a hard drive. So um, if you are a book publisher listening to this, hit me up. 
<laughs> I'm her agent. <laughs> this is true. Thank you so much for having me. Oh girls. my god. We are not letting you go just yet. Would oh, you like to play a game show? Of course. Okay, great. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be playing hypotheticals. just between us it is time for hypotheticals with gabby's aunt so we know this will be one of the best games ever played um <laughs> michelle hypotheticals is a game where you and gabby are my contestants i'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations you can ask as many clarifying questions as you want then you say what you would do in that situation and then i just arbitrarily decide if i like your answer <laughs> it's it's not a fair game and the rules are constantly changing <laughs> great much like life in general all right yeah. so our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater you find out that every time your partner of six years gets a massage they start the massage by making out with their masseuse oh. they claim it is the only thing that makes them relaxed enough to enjoy the massage and it's not romantic would you stay <laughs> with this cheater um yes <laughs> How long have they been getting massages? Um, their whole adult life. So before oh. we met. Yeah. And they don't think that's weird. Uh, I mean, they never told you about it. So maybe they suspected it was not normal. How did I find out? Because of COVID, you had a masseuse <laughs> come to the house instead of them going to a parlor. And um, you opened the door by accident and you saw them making out. Michelle? <laughs> so... They so they married me even though they were making out with this masseuse already. Yeah. And is the masseuse married too? It's been a few different masseuses throughout the years. Oh, masseuse. but their current masseuse is also married. How many masseuses agreed to this? Four. <laughs> Four? Yeah. Interesting. And right. And then so they've been making out with their masseuses even though there's COVID. <gasps> Ooh, that is a. Well, they, they they took a break from getting the massage until they got vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, but are the masseuses vaccinated? It's not. We don't know. Okay, then oh, I have to leave. Uh... I won't stay. I'm not staying. <laughs> so if you'd found out in 2019, you would have stayed. But finding out in 2021, you're leaving. <laughs> Michelle? I'm still staying. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the done guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next game. Is this a date? One of your coworkers asks you to join their book club. Being an avid reader, you gladly accept. But when you show up, you are the only one there. Your coworker explains that they wouldn't trust anyone else's opinion on literature. <laughs> Is this a date? Um, have they ever shown any interest in you before? You're 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 good friends at the office and you talk a lot about books. Okay. Were other people invited to the book club and I'm the one that showed up? Or... No, you were the only one invited to the book club. <laughs> it's not really a club then. Just two Says people. Who? Says who? Is this person creepy? <laughs> no, you find them delightful. Oh. But am I into them? Like It hadn't occurred to you before. Wow. I think it is a date. Now, do I want to be there? I don't know. But I think it is a date. I think it's a date. It's not a date. They just want to talk about books. 
Oh, now I'm embarrassed. Now you're so embarrassed. How can I show my face at the office? You you have to quit. I have to quit my job. Now I'm creepy. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Our final game. Okay. Are you an asshole? Okay. <laughs> you bought a sweater at a boutique, but once you got home, you realized you didn't like it as much as you thought you did. So you bring it back. When you try to return it to the owner of the boutique, they start to cry and say, please don't do this. Please don't do this. But you insist on returning it anyway. Are you an asshole? <laughs> Why are they saying that? Because they really had been so happy they'd made a sale and now you're giving it, you're returning it. Michelle, I feel like this has happened to you. <laughs> yes. I think it has. And I think they didn't return it because they cried. <laughs> I know. You're such a nice... Like, she shops at a lot of boutiques. Like, like I feel like you know a lot of shop owners. And I also feel like you are a person who would keep a sweater because someone cried. <laughs> exactly. That's me. It didn't exactly happen, but it could. <laughs> I guess I would keep it. And then I guess I would give it to a friend, re-gift it, Goodwill. I don't know. Not Goodwill, but... So if you gave it back, then you are, in fact, an, if you do return it, then you are an asshole. Is that the verdict? Yeah. I think, though, if you keep it, you're also an asshole. Because <laughs> you're easily manipulated? Yeah. You're not an asshole, but you might be a sucker. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this person learned how to cry on command, so no one could ever return anything. Spoiler, it's not a boutique. It's a Target. You're returning a sweater at a Target, and for some reason, the person at the Target's taking it really personally. <laughs> Can you imagine? The guy at guest services is like, don't return this radio, please. It's like a Larry David episode. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, my God. Because uh, in theory, this person could have just had a no-return policy at their boutique the whole time. Why did they have to cry? Yeah, they like really. to have that emotional connection. No, I hate it. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us this was amazing um i know gabby has wanted to have you on and we're so glad that it finally worked out well thank you i really had a great time and i really appreciate you inviting me of course your story is so wonderful and you and steven are such a, a huge like you know example to me of love so um i think this is nice for thank you for our audience to hear and i love you guys very much Thank you to Michelle Dunn-Baker for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady since a bitch thinks she's plateaued. And at Gabby Road for me. Um, and again, thank you to Michelle. I love you so much. Forever <laughs> Dog. <laughs>